Danda, you had to use patience last week. But you know, it's pretty cool to be able to bring a camera over to another church and stream and do all that stuff. That's really neat. You know, uh, back in the day, you didn't have access to this kind of stuff. Um, so thank you for your patience with all of it. And uh, welcome again today. Uh, we're going to continue this series that really we've been in it for the whole time here. This idea of predicting your own future, all right? How many of you, you did listen to the message last week as it was on the screen? All right, you sure? <laughs> okay, well, I'm, or online, even if you watched it online or you listened or whatever, because I'm going to test you a little bit this morning. Uh, so we started this thing with the idea that it's really not that mysterious and that complicated to, to see your future. I mean, there's things that we do in life and choices that we make and decisions that we make, and you observe things over a long period of time. You say, well, I saw that coming a while ago, or I should have seen that coming because look at the way, look at the way the dots connect, look at the way the pieces of the puzzle connect, right? And Jesus told a little story that kind of illustrates this with the, the, the wise and the foolish builders. Do you remember that? You have people who build their house on on sand or a builder that builds on sand because it's cheap, it's easy, it's faster, uh, it's the easy way. And then you have people who build or a person who builds on the rock. And everybody who hears this story that Jesus is telling, they say, well, we know where this is going to go. We know how this is going to how this is going to proceed because the wind is going to come and the the water is going to come and the, the, the rains will come and what's going to happen? Well, the person who built his house on the sand is going to wipe the house away with a great crash and the person who built his house on the rock is going to stand. And of course, the rock represents the, the Jesus, the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. It's him. So he's saying, you've got to build your life on me. Okay, okay, that's fine. And then we talked about a kind of a practical thing the week after, really practical in church life. What do you do when someone offends you? What do you do when you are offended? Uh, yeah, you've, you've caused offense or you feel offended. How do you behave? You, you can build your house on the rock in the way that you do that, or you can build your house on the sand in the way that you do that. That is, in my view, the most important message you're going to hear this year. So you want to listen to it again if you haven't heard it already, all right? And then the next week after that, uh, we talked about, okay, that's all well and good what you're saying, but there's this kind of inside life and outside life, isn't there? There's this kind of battle. We can, we can live in such a way that we appear to be building our house on the rock and everything looks good on the outside. And wow, look at this person. They're like a veritable boy scout, you know? And then all of a sudden, crash. It's like their life crashes. How did that happen? Well, that's because there's a contradiction between what's going on inside the person and what's going on outside the person. And you cannot sustain that contradiction in the long term. If, if on the inside things look good, maybe the person who knows you really well says, oh, yeah, this is a person of conviction, this is a person of integrity, and so on. The, the inside, their heart is clean. Uh, and yet sometimes you see, well, why did they make such a horrible choice? Well, why did they do that? Well, because the convictions that you thought that they had weren't really as strong as they were because in the long run, in the long run, your actions, your behavior are going to be the telltale sign of what journey, what path you're taking. It's going to be your actions that reveal it in the long run, in the long run. You may be able to conceal. 
this battle between the outside and the inside for a while. You may be able to fool everyone. You may be able to even fool yourself. But over time, you are going to come to a crash if there is a contradiction. Your house is going to crash like that house that's built on sand. Um, and then uh, last week, we, we talked about spiritual growth because what God wants is that that life on the inside comes out naturally. That's called fruit. So how does that happen? And uh, how, how can we actually grow spiritually? So we talked about this last week. Now, I told you, uh, well, I went over some myths about spiritual growth at the beginning, and I told you one of, those, one of those myths is that good preaching equals spiritual growth. So all you have to do is listen to good preaching all the time, and you're going to grow spiritually. And I told you that you will remember about 10% of what is preached, so I'm going to test you and see if that's true, and see if you actually remember anything about last week and what was preached and what was on that big screen, all right? So, so tell me, just, just shout out to me, do you remember any of those myths about spiritual growth? I've already told you one, but what's another one? Uh-huh. So you've already proven myth number one. <laughs> That happens from good preaching because apparently you don't remember even that percentage. Okay, I'll take from Erezia. Oh, good preaching, yeah, yeah. You remember another one, anybody? Yes, Estella. That's right, yeah. Right, so, so good church programming and Christian education, well, that's all well and good, but if you don't do something intentional, then that's all just, just church programming. Yeah, anybody else? I'll wait for an adult before I switch. Yes, yes, yes. Hoyen. Hmm? Age, that's right, that's right, and that is very true. So just because a person's physically older, and depending on how you define older, that is no bearing on whether or not they're spiritually growing. Somebody down here. Yes, JJ. Uh-huh. Yeah, so we're good. We don't, we don't say as parents, well, it's, you know, it's city kids' job to disciple my children. It's their job. It's not my job. Good, good. What's the last one? The last myth about spiritual growth. I'll give you a hint. Oh, man, you've proven myth number one to be true. Any, any adults, remember, the kids, are beating, the kids are doing better than the adults. They got better memories than you, adults. They're putting you to shame. That's when we have these check boxes, right? And we just check the spiritual box. So we got baptized, check. We tithe, check. Hey, we volunteer, check, check, we just check the boxes, and now put our feet up, and we say, oh, yeah, we're all spiritually grown up. All of this is not true. These are all myths, right? You have to be intentional if you want to grow up spiritually, and there's two ways you know that you're growing spiritually. Do you remember the two ways? Two ways that you know. It's not by checking boxes. It's not by going to church necessarily. All those things are well and good, but there's two ways, according to the Scripture, that you really know you're spiritually growing. The kids are putting you to shame, adults. Come on. Start, first one starts with an F. It's not a bad word. 
Yes, Evo. Okay, I'll, I'll grant that. I'll grant that, but give me more. F-R. It's not a bad word. Fruit. Who said it? Good. Yeah, there's got to be fruit. So, so I mean, uh, uh, fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If you don't have these things, you're not spiritually growing. This characteristics, the way that you live. You can see it in people's lives. No fruit, no spiritual growth. Okay, there's another way. Adults going once. Paul, what's that? Daily prayer, yeah, you're ahead of me a little bit. You're ahead of me. We'll get to that in a sec. Hold that thought. No more adults? Okay, you're patient. Arezi. Okay, that's part of the other thing. Uh, 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 Amani. It's okay, good. That's good. Yeah, that's good. But you're a little ahead of me. Yeah. There's another way that you know that you're spiritually growing. It's the hardest way. It's the hardest way. It's not fruit. We already talked about fruit. What's the other way? Man, you all have proven the... Sur- yes, Eliza. Reading the Bible is good. That's part of the next part. You guys are you, you're jumping ahead. All of you are jumping ahead. The four in the front are like, you know... Anybody else? Come on now. Matthew chapter 28. Come on, come on, come on. Hoyin. He's pointing at you. Ah, thank you. Thank you, Evo, for giving her the right answer. Right, making disciples. Hello, Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. You're not making disciples. You're not spiritually growing. Ouch. No fruit, no disciple making, no growth. Woo, you say, man. So we talk about the spiritual growth, the spiritual discipline smoothie. That's what some of you have fired out, right? You put all these ingredients in your smoothie, and they're like spiritual disciplines. They're not boxes you check off. They're disciplines, and you do them over and over and over again in life. Or if it's something like water baptism, you understand what the purpose is of that. That's going public with your faith. That's a discipline. That's not a checkbox, right? You put all these ingredients in your spiritual discipline smoothie over a long period of time, over a long period of time, you're going to start to see the fruit of the Spirit come out of your life. You're actually going to make maybe even one disciple. Yay! That's all well and good. But there is a part of that message that I want to unpack for the next few minutes, and that is that you can put all that stuff in your smoothie, but if you have no foundation to it, it's not going to work. And that foundation is what Jesus said. He said, you've got to follow me. So if you're not, if you haven't started by following Jesus, if that's just an assumption and you haven't really followed Jesus and you don't have that that long-term relationship with him where he's your leader and you're his follower, where you're his, you're, you are a student of his. And if you don't have that, you can do all that other stuff. You're not going to grow because you don't have a foundation. So I want to answer the question, why then do we even need to follow Jesus anyway? Why? If you tell your non-Christian friend that they need to follow Jesus, that's the first question they're going to ask you. Why? Okay, okay, you're a Christian, you follow Jesus, that's great. But you must have problems in your life. You must have something that happened in your life, and that's why you turned to religion. That's why you turned to Jesus. But that's all well and good for you, but I don't need that. 
Like, my life is fine. I do not need to follow your Jesus. That's good. I respect your beliefs. Uh, da, 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 they'll say all that. But I really don't need that. So I want to try and help you understand why do you need to follow Jesus anyway? This may apply to you or it may apply to a conversation that you're having with a non-churched person. Why do you need to follow Jesus anyway? And answer the question, I want to go back in time a little bit. Um, to uh, this person on the screen. I don't see him on my monitor. I don't know if there's a way you can switch that, Sarah, so that I can see the, um, uh, see the screen, uh, what's going on on the screen behind me, but I'll try and read it off of my thing. I want to introduce you to this guy here. Uh, his name is, or was, Rudolf Bultmann. And probably when, you're, <laughs> probably when you're having these conversations, you say, what's this got to do with Rudolf Bultmann? Well, it has a lot to do with him. And Bultmann was a New Testament scholar, 20th century scholar, and um, a lot of the things that people think about Jesus today, a lot of the things that people think about the Bible today have been shaped by Bultmann and by others, but he was a central figure in this. And Bultmann um, had a view of the New Testament and of the Bible as a whole that's sometimes called uh, uh, demythologizing. So what he said was, look, he said, look, we're, we're modern and we're sophisticated people here. We're, this is past the, the age of enlightenment even. You know, the enlightenment, you had philosophers like Immanuel Kant, um, who kind of influenced Bultmann, but Bultmann would be like even more, more advanced. And the, the, he would say, there's no need for you to believe in all these, these miracles as literal things. These are, these are important things as, as, a, as a story. Thank you, I see it on the screen. These are important as a story, but there, there's no necessity for these things to actually have taken place. And they, they haven't taken place anyway, at least in, in Bultmann's view. But in his view, we need, to, we need to get to a place where we understand the Bible and we demythologize it. So we take these things like Jesus and uh, his death on the cross and physical resurrection from the dead especially and, you know, whether or not he's actually really, really God and all these things. We need to, those are, those are interesting stories. Yes, those have a modern application to us, but there's no need for those things to actually have happened for us to have some meaning in a psychological sense, in a grand cultural sense to uh, the Bible. And so this is called demythologizing and he would say, you know, these myths of deaths and resurrection exist in all forms of culture, in all forms of religion. Christianity is just one of them. Let's appreciate the myth, but we don't need to start saying we have to believe that this thing actually happened. So he would say, Jesus Christ is certainly presented as the Son of God, a pre-existent divine being, and therefore, to that extent, a mythical figure. You see, and by myth, he, he means kind of what I just said. He's, he, he's saying this, this type of mythical figure exists across the culture. And uh, modern thinkers like Bultmann would say, look, look at the movies that you all watch. Here you see this myth played out before your very eyes, death and resurrection. You know, look at uh, uh, the, the Avengers series. You know, you, you, this is all death and resurrection. This is all psychological. This, is, this has meaning, but this doesn't have to be real in a real historical sense. So to that extent, a mythical figure, but he also... Uh, uh, but he is also a concrete figure of history, Jesus of Nazareth. And his life is more than a mythical event. It is a human life which ended in the tragedy of the crucifixion. If you ask Bultmann, 
If the resurrection actually took place, Bultmann would say an historical fact which involves a resurrection from the dead is utterly inconceivable. So he most certainly was a scholar who did not believe in the literal, physical resurrection of the body of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Okay, for him, this was mythology, important mythology, mind you, meaningful mythology, but mythology. You say, who cares? The guy is in the grave. Like, what, what does this have to do with following Jesus? Well, when you talk to your non-Christian friend, or maybe you're in the room and you think some of the same things, you know, we live at, listen, pastor, we're in the 21st century. I mean, look, to, to try and believe in these miraculous things and why can't, we, why can't we deconstruct the story and get something out of the story of the resurrection, for example? But do we really have to believe that these things are true? I mean, come on, you know, walking on water, being raised from the dead, all these miracles, aren't these more meant even as myths with a, with a greater sort of meaning, maybe a psychological meaning? Do we really have to, like, take this stuff literally? You're going to hear this kind of stuff, this kind of argument from the culture at large because we're supposed to be so sophisticated um, and so advanced. So some of this uh, and historical fact, which involves a resurrection from the dead is utterly inconceivable. Some of us, we say that, but just using different words. So let me take you to a modern version of this. Uh, and this is a, a very, very intelligent uh, uh, psychologist, actually. And a number of us were having a conversation this Wednesday night at a little Bible study in, uh, in Krispy Kreme in Greenfield Park that, that Paul Patterson leads. How many more weeks left? Two? One more week? Okay, so just this week and it's finished? Well, you're welcome to join us this week. It's at 7 o'clock over at the Krispy Kreme and really interesting Bible study. And we were talking about, you know, whether Jesus is a social revolutionary or the risen Savior. We talked about that. And this person's name came up, who I'm about to, to mention to you. And this, this person is incredibly popular right now. Uh, there's a number of reasons why, but this is almost like rock star popularity. Uh, he is a psychologist, a teacher, outstanding um, uh, communicator, a very popular writer. And the things that he is saying, uh, in particular with reference to Christianity, are now being really looked at and really considered by people all across the board Churched and unchurched uh, are looking at what he says. And, and so let me introduce you to him. His name is Jordan Peterson, a Canadian, actually. And uh, again, outstanding communicator and, and, uh, and writer and all of this stuff. And so he has a few things that he says with reference to Christianity. And since we had this conversation, me and a few people uh, in the coffee shop there, boy, I've really been thinking about this. And I've been reading about him and reading what he says and watching videos. And it's just like all day. It's like, well, who is this person and what is he saying? Well, let me just, let me just give you some food for thought with this whole question of why do I need to follow Jesus? This is what Peterson says. When asked the question, the basic question, do you believe in God? He will turn the tables on the person who asked the question. He say, I don't like that way you're phrasing the question because you're assuming that I, I believe certain things or I understand certain things about the word belief and about the word God that are the same as the way you're asking them. And the chances of those two being the same are probably very, very slim. So I don't really like your question because you're boxing me in and you're assuming certain things by the definitions of those words uh, that may not be true. And so here's how he would answer the question. He says this, I act as if God exists. This is a very, very important statement. 
I act as if God exists. And his argument, if you read it in context, is he, he, he would say, you know, you can talk about what you believe. All the, Talk about what you believe. It's fine. But I'll show you what I believe by the way that I live. This is what he really means by this. And he's saying, I act, I behave as if God exists. So I just, I don't just say things and you shouldn't just say things. And some people say things about what they believe. They don't even know what they believe. Watch their behavior and you will see what they believe. Well, that's a, that's a good thought. That's a biblical thought. I mean, James says, faith without works is dead. I mean, show me your faith. I'll, I'll show you my faith by what I do. And this, I think, is in fairness to Peterson, what he's trying to say. I act as if God exists. And then people have interviewed him, and they quiz him more. They say, wow, okay. And they say, well, tell me, has Jesus risen from the dead? And here's his response. He says, he says well, certainly his spirit is alive and well today. Now, when you, when you ask him further and when he's pressed further, well, what do you mean by spirit? He will not say, well, there's a literal, like, supernatural spirit. He will say the pattern of being of Jesus for sure is alive today. It's transcended culture. It's transcended time. Uh, it's transcended people groups. And you see the pattern of living of Jesus, which he would define as the spirit of Jesus as being alive and well today. And then the interviewer press him even further and say, do you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead physically, like his corpse came out of the grave? And to this, he says, after pondering for quite a bit, he says, I don't know. He says, did his body resurrect? I don't know. Uh, the accounts, and he's referring to the accounts in the New Testament, the gospels are not clear. And the meaning of these accounts aren't clear. And so the, the, he is, is really being looked at and, and really being um, processed, I guess, by, by scores and scores of, of teachers and scholars. And I mean, you just look up this person's name on the Internet, you are going to have a massive amount of information. So I want to play with this statement, act as if God exists. Why do I need to follow Jesus? And borrowing from this teacher, act as if God, I act as if God exists. All right? Um, so I want to answer this question, how can we act as if God exists? And I want to propose to you that acting as if God exists is impossible without two things. And these are the two things. He actually does, and he is the one who is acting through us. And he is the one who is living through us. It is a very noble thing to say, I act as if God exists. It's very noble if someone were to look at your life, let's say an unbeliever were to look at your life and say, well, you know, you certainly act and behave as if God exists. That's a very, very noble thing. But I would like to propose to you that this is impossible in the long run without two things. God actually does exist for this to come true. And he is the one who is actually doing the living through us. And I want to do this by teaching you a theological term uh, that we don't often use today. It's called total depravity. You say, wow, you're, it's really... What are you, this depressing message? Like, what are you, are you talking about Rudolf Bultmann and 
somebody else, Jordan Peterson, never even heard of these people. I want to talk to you about total depravity and try and argue to you that you need to follow Jesus and you cannot successfully follow Jesus and you cannot behave as if God exists without him actually existing and him living through you because of total depravity. Now, here's what total depravity means in a theological sense. It does not mean that everybody is totally depraved and that you're all evil people and that, you know, you're horrible monsters and you may look good on Sunday mornings, but behind closed doors, you're all totally depraved. It does not mean that. What total depravity means in a theological sense is every part of humanity, every part of of you as an individual, of me as an individual, has been affected in a negative sense by sin. Every part. So in that sense, we are totally depraved. There's no part of us that has not been impacted in a negative sense by sin. So Mark chapter, um, where am I? Oh, I'll get to that later. Okay, Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 21 to 23. This is Jesus arguing with the Pharisees about hand washing. And this, well, you're ceremonially unclean. I see your disciples are ceremonially unclean. And Jesus turns the tables on, on them. And he says this, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. Probably Jordan Peterson would agree and say, look, I'll show you God by the way that I act. I, I, I act as if, he, as if he exists. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly, all these evils come from inside and defile a person. We have this problem that every part of us is affected by sin. In that sense, we are totally depraved. Our bodies, our very bodies are impacted by sin. Paul in, uh, in Romans chapter 7, uh, really chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8 arguing this whole thing about grace and about the power of God to change a person from the inside out and how he, he himself even struggles. He wants to do certain things, but he can't, it seems, because there's like this power within him that he has this battle with sin. And he says, what a wretched man I am. Verse 24, Romans 7. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? The very... The very process that you and I are going through and that our bodies are physically decaying is a result, in a theological sense, of sin running its course. You say, well, I'm a Christian. How come this still happens? Well, because you're still here. You still live in a fallen world with a body that's bearing the consequences of sin. And really, you could argue the whole of creation is impacted in a negative sense because sin is in the world, even our very bodies. This is why the New Testament argues for the resurrection of the body. 
the physical body because it is in a corrupted state. It is in a dying state. And Paul says the corruptible will inherit the incorruptible. There will be a physical resurrection of the body of the believer because it is sown in sin, you see. Our bodies are affected by it. Our minds are affected by sin. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul speaking about humanity at large using the past tense, almost in a prophetic sense. And he says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, useless, and their foolish hearts were darkened the darkening of the mind because of sin. Our emotions are corrupted because of sin. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 to 4, again from Paul writing to young pastor Timothy and, and speaking again about humanity at large and trying to see, see into the future. And he says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's speaking of the emotions. And the emotions are corrupted by sin. The will is corrupted by sin. Paul says again, arguing this whole thing, this battle that he's having, he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, that's my will, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And it's almost like Abbott and Costello, you know, who's on first? And if I, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. His will is corrupted by sin. Our bodies are corrupted by sin. Our emotions are corrupted. Our thoughts are corrupted. This is what we mean when we say total depravity. So in this question of why do we need to follow Jesus? Well, if you're not following Jesus, you're following something or someone else. What are you following? And the person who says, well, I don't need to follow Jesus the way you follow Jesus. You have problems. You come out of drug abuse or you had this happen. You had this traumatic situation in your life. And that's why you turned to religion. That's all well and good. But I don't need that. I don't follow anyone. You know who they're following? Themselves. Themselves. There's a little throne in their heart and they're on the throne. And that's who they're following. Uh, maybe they're following someone in a relationship. And they, they might, maybe it's someone who they're very close to, or maybe it's someone who they idolize, and they emulate that person and follow that person and idolize, not necessarily by bowing down and worshiping the person, but they're following that. Their whole worldview, their whole system of ethics and everything is, is, is modeled after someone else. Or maybe, maybe they follow culture. Culture is just a whole bunch of people who live in a certain way in a certain place and say, well, we li I live by this culture that's following something. And all of those have one thing in common, humanity. We're all, and we're all following something that's human-centered there. And that's a problem if total depravity is real. Because if total depravity is real, then what we're going to do by following ourselves or culture or another person is we're going to destroy ourselves. That's what's going to happen. 
we're going to lead ourselves down as, a, as humanity into a pathway of self-destruction. I don't mean to sound doom and gloomish, but that's, that's what will happen if total depravity is true. And that is why if we're really going to see spiritual growth happen in our lives, we need, if we're really going to act as if God exists, as per Jordan, Jordan Peterson, if we're really going to behave that way, he has to live through us. And he has to be transforming us from the inside out. That's the only way that it's going to work if total depravity is real. You, you, you can follow a mythological Jesus if you want, as per Rudolf Bultmann. You can follow a mythological Jesus. He's not going to transform you from the inside out. You can follow a psychological Jesus, but he's not going to transform you from the inside out. Paul said to the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. It's futile. You are still in your sins. Those who have died in Christ are lost. If it's only for this life that we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied beyond all men. So he's saying, you want forgiveness of your sins and change in your life? You've got to follow Jesus. If he, if he has not been raised from the dead, literally, you're lost. You are still trapped in your sin. And all the people who died before you who are believers in Jesus, you will never see them again. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, for him, it wasn't a mythological Christ. It wasn't a psychological Christ. It was a real Christ who really rose from the dead, you see. And you are not going to be set free from sin. You will never be able to grow spiritually unless you cross the line and follow Jesus. Now, he put this in a very, very graphic fashion. And with this, we'll, we'll start to wind up here in John chapter 6. I posted this on, on Facebook this weekend. Got a little bit of response from that. It is a very, very graphic way of saying this that... Um, uh, Jesus, uh, it's recorded here in John chapter 6. It's the only place uh, where this is recorded. And it is the hardest saying, the most blunt, the most direct, the most offensive saying of Jesus probably in the entire New Testament. Uh, you can buy books on the hard sayings of Jesus, and this is number one, graphic, offensive, harsh, and the result shows that indeed it was. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. This is after Jesus walked on water and he starts to identify himself as the bread of life. So this group of people who saw him uh, multiply the loaves and feed the 5,000, which is probably more like 15,000 or around the size of uh, the, the bell center, if you factor in all the women and the kids who would have been there, uh, he ends up on the other side of the Lake of Galilee after walking across the water and this same crowd who had seen him feed the, all these people, they finally find him. They say, "How did you, when did you get here? And he says, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you, you ate, because you had your fill. You saw the loaves and you ate. Then he says, do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He's referring to himself there. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do? You no, know, Jordan Peterson, 
I act as though God exists. What must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus turns the tables on them, and he says, the work of God is this. Drum roll, please. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. What? To, but what does that mean? To show me something concrete, give me some action to show that, that, that I'm doing the works that God requires. He says, to believe in the one he has sent. You have to cross the line. You have to cross that line of faith and say, I follow Jesus. That's the foundation for spiritual growth. And then they continue the conversation. What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What a dumb question. They had just seen him multiply uh, five little loaves of bread and 15,000 people ate. And they ask him, what miraculous sign will you give that we will believe you? What a, what a foolish question. What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, going way back to the book of Exodus. Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Ha <laughs> ha. Are you going to pull some bread out of heaven to eat? I mean, duh, did you not see the multiplication of the loaves? But they didn't get it. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, referring to himself again, he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they say, from now on, give us this bread. You know, it's like the conversation he's having with the Samaritan woman a few chapters earlier. He talks about giving living water to her. And she says, sir, give me, give me this water that I'll never get thirsty. And then Jesus goes even further. He says, I am the bread of life. Not I'm giving you the bread. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me and believes in me will never go thirsty, will never go hungry. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Strong. All the Father gives me, uh, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do the will, uh, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is his will, that I shall lose none of them that he has given me, but I will raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, again, who follows Jesus, who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And they start to get upset because he's referring to himself as the bread of life. This is beyond the Samaritan woman where he said, I give you, I'll give you living water. Now he says, I am the bread of life. And they're starting to grumble. They're saying, well, who does he think he is? I mean, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? One of the only references to Joseph in John uh, in his gospel, whose father and mother we know. How can we say, I came down from heaven? And Jesus, knowing what they're saying, he says, stop grumbling amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And he keeps going with this same thought, driving the point that you've got to come to him. He is that bread of life. He's not just the giver of it. He is it. And he's the center, the total center of attention. You want to do what God wants? You need to start by following me. 
Here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Watch this. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then they start to get even more upset. And they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Gross. They're thinking that cannibalism, what's he talking about? And he says, he, he drives them even further. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. I have never preached on this text ever in my life, okay? It's so, people, what is he talking about? Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. He's speaking to first century Jewish culture. You know how offensive this is? You will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. I'm so strong. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Remains in me. In John chapter 15, he calls himself the vine and we are the branches. And he says, remain in me. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the Father has sent me and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and they died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And we're told he's preaching this little message in Capernaum. And uh, they say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I mean, wow, it's graphic. In their minds, it's gross. I mean, we have, a, we have an advantage in that we have the complete jo- gospel of John. And so we say to ourselves, wait a second, wait a second. We know what he's doing here. He's using kind of figurative language to refer to the fact that he's going to die, to refer to the fact that he's going to give his life and be physically executed, and his blood's going to be shed, and we need to somehow appropriate that in a very, very personal way to our lives. We can understand that if we read the whole Gospel of John. They certainly did not get that. They thought he was talking about cannibalism, and they say this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And he says, does this offend you? Um, Well, what what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? What if I just leave you right now, is what he's saying. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. And he's referring there to uh, uh, Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. Then it says in verse 66, very matter-of-factly, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Man, it's Jesus like Jesus in, in today's sense, he had people who left his church. His preaching was too, like he was too, that's too graphic. That's too, you're pushing us too far. And he's, people left him and they no longer followed him. Wow, amazing passage of scripture there. If you're going to make up a story about Jesus, you're probably not going to put that in. And he says to the 12 uh, uh, apostles, he says, do you want to leave too? And Simon says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Who are we going to follow? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else are we going to go? Who else are we going to follow? We are going to follow you. And he kind of, you know, affirms his 
commitment. What, what, am I, what am I saying? I'm telling you this. You can try and do this Christian thing on your own. You can try and live as Christianly as you can. You can try and act as if God exists. If you do not have him in your life, if you have not crossed the line of faith and say, I have decided to follow Jesus. In John's words, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. In Paul's words, we are in him. Our identity is in him. In Jesus' words, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You've got to abide in me. You have to have such a close communion with me that I am living through you. If I'm not living through you, good luck. You can try and live Christianly. You're going to run into a dead end because all you have, if you don't have Jesus as your foundation, is you have religion. And your religion is not good enough. Because you, my friends, and I say it to myself, we are all totally depraved. This is why we need to follow the one who is not. The only one who is not is the Lord Jesus himself. So I wonder today, and I'd like the musicians if they'd come to, to the, the, the stage and just finish up uh, today. We're a little bit late, but there's no movie coming in here for another hour, so we should be okay. I wonder if there are those of you who are here today and you say, well, I just never really, never really processed it like that. And you know what? I'm, I'm maybe one of those people. Like I just go through the motions, but I don't really have Jesus in that sense. I don't have a deep communion with him. I don't have a personal, I, I can't say that I am 